Welcome to Creative Twist. I'm Sally Vanderpump and I'm going to be talking to people who have rediscovered their creativity after a break or taken a twist in their career path and tried something new. I know creativity has made my life better. Let's find out more about how it has changed my guests' lives. Artist jeweller Elafir and Lowe had a career in international development, but after the birth of her second daughter in 2012, she began making jewellery, and a business was born at the end of 2016. With influences as varied as 17th century glassware, postmodern architecture and Roman jewellery, Ella's designs won Goldsmiths Awards in 2018 and 2020, and she's been tipped as one of Vogue's one to watch. In this episode, we talk about how daytime TV led her to prioritise creativity, why it can be hard to break through the pain barrier to get back in after a break, and the power of a good teacher's push. Ella, I was looking at your website this morning and I see that you you call your jewellery delicious jewels. Do you want to tell me a little bit for people who haven't seen your work, what your jewellery work is like? Uh, So I make uh, contemporary jewellery in mixed materials. uh, And at the moment, I particularly use lucite, which is a type of plastic which I hand carve and then polish. So it has a very high shine. And I think actually after a while of making work with that material, I realised that it has a sort of slightly edible quality. Uh, And actually, I took a commission before Christmas from someone who thought the same and asked me to make uh, a brooch that could also be worn as a pendant and would look like a chocolate because his wife is a chocolatier. And I thought that was such a lovely thing to be asked to do. Uh, But yeah, definitely there is sort of, I want to eat them and I think other people want to eat them. They do. They look absolutely, yeah, so enticing and tactile the way they're beautifully carved. So lucite is like a, it's a plastic It's a plastic, so it comes in sheet form and I then cut the shapes I want and I hand carve them with hand tools in my studio. So, you know, I could use an electric motor, but I don't. I actually genuinely use just hand files. That's quite laborious, but it also means I have quite a kind of an intimate relationship with the material. And, you know, the judgments that I'm making about the final shape are happening all the way through. So I'm sort of balancing it up as I'm going. And how do you get that incredible shine on them? Is, is that a polish? Yeah. Yeah. Elbow grease. So, elbow grease. Uh, but actually, that is electronic. So I have a little motor that I use. Um, not a big, a teeny, teeny, teeny jeweler's motor. Uh, and I put different heads on, different polishing compounds. Uh, and, yeah, it's often the thing that I will keep doing until the absolute sort of final moment. Because once my pieces are assembled, I rivet. Uh, the sort of precious components to the non-precious components um, because I can't use heat because of the plastic. I create little kind of metal joins with rivets uh, and I hammer it. And once I've done that, I can't polish anything again because all the different types of material need different polishing compounds. So yeah, it's a sort of nerve wracking moment where I make everything look beautiful and then take a hammer to it and hope for the best really. Wow. Are you able to polish the lucite at all once it's all assembled? No. Wow. No. So then I could just use, you know, I'd just use a little polishing cloth or something. Mm. But um, no, not really. Wow. I love that idea of the process. So you have to have a really clear idea then of what the finished piece is going to be like once it's assembled. Yes. I always, well, I always have a very strong vision. And then there are decisions that get made in the making. So actually rivet placement 
is often something that happens in the making. So I'll have a sense that I want, you know, them to be a little scatter across the front or I want them to be very sort of evenly spaced and slightly more um, kind of formal arrangement. But actually until I get to the point of working out how the piece is going to join to the body, so I have a particular thing for making brooches um, and you can't rivet too close to the brooch pin. So that's always a consideration. Um, so, yeah, I've, you know, I think there's a very clear vision and then there are things that are more organic and sort of happen as it's being made, if that makes any sense. Mm. And and talking of organic, I think you've often been influenced by organic forms and shapes, haven't you? So the when we met, you were working, you know, inspired by clouds. And then I've noticed some of your work is seaweed recently. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the organic influence? Yeah, so I think for me, it's a mixture of organic and kind of historical design, almost sort of merged into one, if that makes any sense. Um, so I feel like I'm kind of collecting little bits of visual information in my life all the time. Uh, and sometimes that's in a museum and sometimes that's on a Scottish beach. And both bits of information, both types of information kind of filter into the same visual bank of memories. And actually, it's that bank of memories that I'm drawing on when I'm designing. So. I find that things come out quite intuitively, actually, thoughts or visual memories clash together and create something new. And I suddenly want to draw lots of little designs. So, yeah, <laughs> I guess it's maybe less directly the organic and more indirectly all that information together. I like how on your website you call it a larder of uh, it's almost like you've got a big stock of imagery and then you pick out what you need for the recipe and you make something something delicious out of that it's taken a long time actually to find that language because it seemed so clear to me that that's what it was but I couldn't quite explain to other people how it works and it is like an enormous kind of larder or filing system in my head where I just yes put different things together and so can you tell me a bit Ella about um is this something that you've always had is that an interest you know gathering visual information what were you like as a creative child? Uh, well, I was definitely a collector of things. Um, so, yes, I definitely have always sort of gathered interesting things. I think, you know, as a teenager, I was the one who could always spot the quite cool find in the charity shop. As a child, I collected kind of very avidly old dolls and children's toys and things. Um also, I think I was a maker, so it wasn't just collecting stuff outside of myself. I was always making little tiny things, little tiny hats in hat boxes or little Celtic huts or, you know, models of furniture or, yeah, was sort of all tied up. And then against a backdrop of having a family that took us endlessly to art galleries and, you know, Renaissance churches, and you know, which at the time I was like, oh, God, you know. <laughs> But I realise now that actually, of course, that information stays with you. You know, you can't have a childhood full of that and not keep it, if you know what I mean. Did you resist being dragged around old churches and things and then you kind of look back and realise how worthwhile it all was? Well, exactly. It becomes part of your language. I know children that were raised with lots of music or um, lots of talk about science or lots of talk about literature. In our house, it was art. and 
I think you do, you retain that knowledge and it becomes your kind of specialist knowledge. So we have sort of shorthand as a family. The one thing we can all talk about quite freely and openly where we share, you know, a good level of knowledge. So, yeah, I think, I, you know, didn't love it at the time, but I do love it now. And actually probably loved it even by teenage years. I was sort of very passionate about art. So. Mm. so it's interesting then that you went off on a slightly different tangent for your career. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So at A-level, I did fine art, history of art and film studies. So very art oriented. And I think actually... I had already decided not to go to art school. I already knew I wasn't good enough to be a fine artist. And nobody really explained to me. I knew about 2D design, but I didn't really understand about 3D design. And I think if I had, I might have applied um, back then. But yes, I didn't really know that was an option. So Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? The, there wasn't really the broad range of um, art. It was sort of fine art or... Nothing really, wasn't it? Or changed to something else, I think, at, at that point. I slightly lost a little bit where you were saying there was a an experience that tipped your that tipped you away from art. I missed a little section there. Do you want to just repeat? So uh, I had a gap here in Nepal when I was 18, um, where I lived and worked in a very remote area in Nepal. And actually... That connects to another aspect of my family, which is that my dad's family had mostly been born and raised in India. So I'd always been curious to go back to South Asia. And actually being there just sort of opened up that pot of curiosity and made me really interested in social development and in sort of, I guess, playing a role in helping to shift the sort of poverty and reality that those people were facing at that time, or still are for the large part. Um, and it made me want to see if there was some way I could kind of be involved I guess so I landed up studying uh, South Asian and Development Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. That's amazing and then so where did your career then take you did you travel all over the world? Yeah so I made a decision uh, that I didn't want to necessarily work overseas all the time but I did want to play a role internationally so I always worked based in the UK but for international NGOs and travelled reasonably frequently throughout my career to different places. So I had some jobs that had specialist um, sort of regional interests. So I did do one job that was specifically based in South Asia. So I would go a couple of times, three times a year uh, to, to the region, which was lovely. Uh, and I've had other jobs that were much more international. So actually my last job in the sector was very international. Uh, and I went to Uganda and Argentina and Canada and um, Sweden and it was a fantastic and very interesting job. And so what was the what was the sort of catalyst that brought you back to your creative practice? Uh, I think like quite a lot of women uh, having children. So I had my first child while I was still working and traveling but actually after the birth of my second daughter I realized either I needed to earn a lot more money so I could afford amazing childcare, um, or I needed to step out of my career for a while because actually I could really only just scrape the childcare costs for two children uh, and then added to that the complication of travelling for work. So, you know, the juggle with one child was hard enough, but with two and then school and nursery and all the rest of it was going to become more and more complicated. So actually I just stepped back at that point and I didn't really know what life was going to look like after that. 
I knew I wouldn't be going back into international development. I thought I might segue at some point into kind of UK social um, issues, so charity work or civil service or something. Um, but I'd also been watching a lot of daytime TV, uh, breastfeeding my second baby. And I had realised that most people seem to wait to the end of their life to do two things. There's all these people coming on day after day on all these kind of reality shows, move to the country or whatever. And they all seem to want to grow vegetables and be creative. And I thought, OK, well, here I am, um, you know, lucky enough to have a partner who can afford to pay our bills. And at some point I will need to earn some money. But for now, maybe I could aspire to have that end of life goal. So I took on an allotment and I started studying jewellery part time. <laughs> I think that was almost as simple as that. It was kind of just, well, I'll give it a go and see what happens. I love that idea that, you know, you you kind of get inspiration from that retrospective, what, what I wish I'd done. There was a book by a nurse talking about the things that people said at the end of their lives. And that it was often, I wish I'd tried my hand at X creative activity. And, you know, it's it's good to shape reshape your life around that, <laughs> around that idea, isn't it? And I mean, obviously, with a two small children it wasn't very intensive initially you know it was a sort of it was a journey it didn't just click overnight yeah because it can be hard to find the time to get into a kind of creative flow can't it when you've got little ones running around it's not necessarily the most creative time for the parents <laughs> no I think also I didn't realize till I went back to college I actually found it really nerve-wracking reconnecting with my creativity um, I had an amazing tutor the first year I studied. So I did a certificate course. I knew it was sort of purposeful, even though it was not hugely time consuming. I did a course that was aimed at people who were complete beginners, but knew that they wanted to take it reasonably seriously. Um, with an amazing tutor called Anastasia Young, who's written lots of fantastic books uh, on learning jewellery. And she pushed me quite hard, actually, that first year. So, you know, she kept saying, where are your sketchbooks, Ella? I know you can draw. I want to see more drawings. And she really kind of pushed me to reconnect, I think, with that more art side of myself, um, as well as push me on the technical things. You know, she was very perfectionist. So if you didn't do something well enough first time, she'd have you redo it, <laughs> which was also very good training for just, you know, building those basic skills. It's amazing, isn't it, how one, how a teacher can have such a big impact on your direction? And that can work work both ways. You know, someone can inspire you or they can crush your, your creative <laughs> soul. <laughs> Speaking from experience. Um, no, I just, but I, just, <laughs> I think it is, sometimes we can be really, um, our paths can be completely changed by one person, can't they? There can be someone, if you get that support, it can be incredible. Was there anyone else, do you think, on the, on route to inspired you or? oh my gosh yes definitely I mean actually the college I studied at Morley College in London in Waterloo and actually I think all environment there was really conducive for me it's just incredibly supportive um the head of department there Helen Smith I'm still very good friends with um and I'm friends with lots of the tutors that I had along the way so I spent two terms working with Donna Brennan doing kind of contemporary jewelry but in quite far out materials you know she was using shrinking rubbers and we did lots of stuff in balsa wood and um we were making our own rubber molds and 
just doing lots of quite experimental things and she pushed us to kind of almost go a bit further than we would naturally want to with that so that was amazing so yeah no I think the whole process of entering this world actually has been a real pleasure and I've met lots of really wonderful people and actually it's such a supportive sector I think most of them are still you know friends or acquaintances now which is lovely so at what point did you think okay this is not just going to be a hobby when did you kind of decide to make it a business uh I think I knew that I probably needed to sort of start I guess at least attempting to make it make some money at some point and I'd been doing it for a few years by then and actually I'd done the level two certificate, which sort of followed on from Anastasia's course. I'd done it twice. I did it immediately after. And I realized it was too soon for me because that course was really aimed at launching your business. But I did it again uh, a couple of years later. And actually it was at the end of that that I sort of felt like I was reaching a point where I could see collections emerging and where I sort of thought if I don't do it now, I could just be stuck you know, learning, but not doing for the rest of my life. Um, So I sort of set myself a goal that year. I graduated in the July from that course and I set myself a goal to launch before the Christmas. That was in 2016 uh, and ended up having a sort of launch party because I I know myself quite well. I'm a barricator of the first order. So I thought if I don't put a date in, I'm not going to have anything to work to. I won't. I'll just sort of drift so I set a date and I had a, a launch party, which felt very nerve wracking, but it forced me to just do it. I made a couple of collections and I made a business card and invited everyone I knew um, and sort of thought, right, I'm just going to draw a line in the sand and say, this is this is the day I start my business. <laughs> so I did. That's something that keeps coming up for me, actually, the whole idea of it being a brave something that you have to kind of overcome fear to go back to your creativity. Where do you think that comes from? That fear? I think it's self-doubt, isn't it? I mean, it's creativity is so personal. And when you put it out into the world, it's not that you necessarily care that every person likes it, but it's more that you're laying part of yourself out, I think, for people to see. Um yeah, I mean, I think, and I found that all the way through this process, actually, that every time I've sort of stepped up or done something new or created something new, there is a sort of feeling of fear inside. And actually, I think one of the nice things coming back to this bit later in life has been that it's been easier to recognise it and to say, okay, I can see it, but I'm not going to let it stop me. Whereas I think when you're very young, you're so unsure of yourself actually maybe you do let it stop you so yeah I think that is one really nice thing about doing it now is Mm. that I have felt it and done it (laughs) if you know what I mean so you just (laughs) yeah and you just feel that fear and go ahead anyway yeah do you think there's anything else that comes with experience you know that enriches your creative practice uh I think it's given me the tools actually just to run the business so a lot of my work um in development you know I was doing project management and you know I just had lots of skills I knew how to approach people I I know how to network I know how to set up a spreadsheet for my finances or whatever just think all that basic stuff when you maybe haven't 
done it you know if you're coming out of art college and having to learn all those skills as well as doing the creative side actually I think as a young person that's quite a tall order um I think when you're older you've worked in lots of environments and volunteered and done different things it does give you a kind of I guess a, a language that you can use in lots of different settings so that's definitely helped mm. yeah I was I guess I was going to ask you um for me art and creativity is a big factor in mental health and well-being I think it's such an important thing and expressing yourself do you find there's anything like did you know when you weren't using your creative side as much did you feel it was missing did you if you don't have time do you do you miss it like do you need it is what I guess I'm asking I think when I wasn't doing it so from 18 until I went back to college I don't know that I missed it per se but my life was quite full on so yes I think it would have benefited me and I did do a couple of evening courses in there did do actually yeah, I've completely forgotten about that I think I did a printmaking course and a couple of things along the way but I just could never carve out the time I think my life was just very busy it was very sociable um actually there's something about having children that does make you stop and also reconnect with your creative side because they're just so funny and so open and so intuitive especially when they're tiny before the world sort of gets in and tells them how to do things. Um, so, yeah, whereas now I find the making bit of my process in particular really therapeutic. It's like a meditation. Um, I often find it really hard to start and I find that I tend to make very intensively. So it's not something I visit all the time. But once I disappear into my studio, I'll be gone for two weeks, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so it's kind of... It's really intensive, my making. Uh, I think a lot of makers are much more disciplined and do it sort of three days a week or something. I find that I tend to work on an idea or I get swept into other bits of my life and then there will be a very intensive period of making where it's just very, very focused and the children barely see me, tell me they miss me. Oh, that's, <laughs> that is nice. So is it like there's something that, a kind of internal deadline that there's something that has to come out within that period and you know when it's done sort of and I think also it's a case of once I start I think it's a bit of a rabbit's hole once I start I can't stop until it's finished so there is mm. a sort of an imperative driven by the creative process itself I think it's almost like yeah my hands are like okay I, I want to go back and do the next bit if you know what I mean mm. You said, oh, your hand. So do you feel like your, does your head sort of get out of the way sometimes in your, the process? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's becomes a, a kind of tactile process. It's very tactile. Uh, I think especially because I use quite simple techniques, but the hand making aspect of them is very important to me. So, you know, I cut and sand and carve these materials and the same with my metal. I kind of soften off all my edges and things. And that process is quite hard work, quite therapeutic, quite repetitive. So actually my brain can sort of go into that meditative state and it does become about the fingers more and the wrists and, yeah, them knowing what they're up to. I'm fiddling with my hands as I'm talking. <laughs> mm. I'm just imagining what would your life have been like if you'd gone back to your other career and you hadn't taken 
like it really is a transformational choice isn't it that going back to creativity because it's very different very different previous career Uh, and actually for a long time the thing I missed the most was colleagues but actually I'm now at the point where I have sort of colleagues you know I would class you as a colleague as well as a friend but you know what I mean people I've met along the way that are people I can talk to about work um and and share a laugh with and things and I think I did really miss that because actually the creative journey especially when you do it this way is quite lonely to begin with because it is just mostly Mm. you you pushing yourself and you setting up systems and you designing things and making things and approaching people and so but actually now I have that I love it and I don't I can't imagine going back really so you have a you've got a strong network now of um jewelry colleagues yeah amazing I love this sector I think it's someone said to me it's incredibly friendly and supportive and I didn't really quite believe them because from the outside it feels very daunting uh and I think what's funny maybe and takes a while to realize is that in terms of jewelry out in the world there are lots of different types of jewelry there's the little craft makers and then there's sort of very high-end bond street whatever and everything in between but actually behind the scenes a lot of people know each other across all of those different parts of it, which is not how it seems from the outside. Um, so I mm. think that was quite interesting to me. And obviously things have changed a lot with um, with COVID and events that would have been on where you would have been in the public facing and meeting meeting your clients. That's all um, had to adjust yes. to the current situation. But how, how are you managing with that? Um, at the start, especially once I realised I'd have the kids at home, uh, I realised I probably couldn't take on the same volume of things I had been doing. Um, But also I'm in year four of my business now, sort of nearly five. uh, And, well, four, yeah, anyway. But I realised that, um, or I felt that actually there was a need for me to slightly step back from just doing, because I was doing lots of shows those first three years, so in a weird way, COVID came at a good moment for me. It's just let me sort of slightly step off uh, and focus a bit more on some of my bigger goals or sort of ambitions. So actually, you know, I feel like I've done a lot less, but I am doing sort of more high profile things that maybe challenge me a bit more on a personal level. Uh, so actually, it's been sort of strangely quite a good time for my business, although quieter it sort of economically just because I'm not doing as many shows and meeting people to sell work directly um but I've had some great opportunities this year uh would like to start seeing people in person again though I really Mm. miss that I miss I miss the connection that you see when someone loves your work and I miss talking to people about it and I miss putting things in their hands or seeing people try things on yeah I've read I read on your website actually that you you really value that emotional connection between the wearer and the object can you tell me a little bit more about that because that's something I really relate to I don't think I'd expected it when I sort of started this when you start you just hope someone's gonna like it and maybe buy something from you actually what I realized quite quickly was that for some people there was a real kind of energetic connection almost like when you meet someone new that you know you're going to be really good friends with um and I really love witnessing that connection because it's quite sort of visceral. It's, you know, yeah, it's emotional and it, it's just lovely because actually then 
when there is that connection, when the piece is on that person, it sort of lights both them and the the piece of jewellery up more. I can't, it's sort of like a, a volume dial or something. So it just energises them both. So it's almost like the jewellery kind of comes to life even more when it's on the right person, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I love that idea. I can really see, I can see that so clearly with your work as well. Do you have a very specific idea of your <laughs> client? Say you are at a, a fair and you see someone walking around. Do you think you're able to identify no. they will like my work? No. No. <laughs> no, and actually I seem to be stupendously wrong about that. So I think I have this idea in my head of who my client is. And then every time I see someone like that at a fair, they normally look at my work and move on. <laughs> and actually it's different people. I think it's... My work seems to appeal to quite a broad range of people. Uh, it does seem to appeal a lot to people who have an interest in creativity or the arts. So, yeah, a lot of people who are interested in fine art or maybe designers or architects or, um, you know, curators. Yeah, it does seem to really appeal to people who have quite a strong sort of visual eye, I guess. Um, but beyond that, no, there doesn't seem to be a type. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting because I love the way you kind of put together quite unexpected material. So you'll have like the the gold with, um, I don't know, the lucite just looks so luscious and it actually looks very precious. I, I thought it was some kind of precious stone, but actually if it's a plastic, that's quite an interesting combination, isn't it, of the of the sort of precious and the, I don't know how to describe yeah. it, but you know what I mean, it's really... the sort of combination yeah. of elements. So I think I'm very drawn to materials or I have a very strong sense of how I want something to look and I don't mind what I work in to achieve that feeling, if that makes any sense. Um, but I actually almost actively pursue a relationship between precious and non-precious materials because mm. for me it's about the innate value of the material rather than the sort of monetary value. It's, it's about its, its value as a material. So what does it bring? And sort of exploiting that. And, I, you know, in a way, I really enjoy that quite purposeful connection between things that maybe have no financial value and, and great financial value. So mm. in the last year, I've started using 18 karat gold, but with plastic and then with vintage pearls, mm. but then also with silver or other sort of metals in there too. So, yeah. And is that kind of controversial in the jewellery sphere or is that is that accept you know uh, I think it did well depends where you are so in the very sort of art jewelry bits of the sector they probably shy away from using very precious materials it's almost a political statement to not use them at all and then at the other end the sort of fine jewelry you know the convention is that you would only use fine materials so precious materials mm. but I think there's an increasing space between those two places which is occupied by people like me that are working in this kind of mixed way. Um, actually, I did a talk earlier in the year with two other jewellers, so that's exactly the connection between us is that we all work in this way. So it was Joe Pond and Emily Kidson. Um, Joe has worked a lot with sort of antique tin and Emily works a lot with wood and, you know, formica and uh, yeah, precious metals and things. So... I think they both have that sort of language. And yeah, I think there's an increasing number of us working this way. 
Did you want to talk a little bit more about your creative process? Because I like that idea how some jewellers obviously design in extreme detail and they know precisely. And I read read that you said that <laughs> a lot of jewellers would be able to recreate the same piece okay. in 10 years. But yours is, is much more a sort of maybe playful approach? or yeah less documented um (laughs) I think uh I'm slightly dyslexic actually which I didn't find out till nearly the end of my kind of school career uh and I find that my creative process is a bit like my experience of dyslexia which is that lots of ideas go in and become a big soup of spaghetti uh and then one day out of nowhere and not normally with any formal warning some very clear vision of what is going to come out emerges. So it all goes in into a big kind of jumble that comes out in a beautiful straight line. And I think my design process is a bit like that, that they'll just suddenly have a light bulb moment and I'll know I want to do something. Um, And I normally start with lots and lots and lots of little sketches, but like a lot of jewellers, which will always make people laugh because they can make such beautiful things, jewellers' drawings tend to be almost like play school drawings, you know, a big circle with a dot in the middle, like you know, pretty frilly edge or whatever. And we'll know exactly what that's going to look like when it's finished, but it won't be, you know, I don't do these beautiful kind of rendered drawings that some jewellers do. Um, I'm glad you say that because I I felt like that when I was doing mine and I just, I felt very inadequate in terms of design process. But actually, like you say, you know, you have an idea of what the the end piece will be. Yeah. But it's, it, forms in the process as well it does I tend to do very simple drawings lots and lots and lots of them and then I will kind of refine from that and I'll pick you know I like this idea it may not be that it's going to look exactly like that but I like the energy of the sort of balance of shape and form or scale whatever from that drawing um so I did some new pieces for Goldsmiths Fair before Christmas and, you know, it started exactly like this. I had a few pages of little sketches and I picked a sort of short list of five or six pieces I definitely wanted to make. And then in the process of making, some of them went by the wayside and other ones came in. Um, so, you know, I might get partway down the making process and just not quite like the balance of it, not quite like I can't quite resolve it in some way. But with my current work, I always start with the lucite because the lucite shape is at the heart of my pieces. So I will carve that and the shape of that almost sort of develops in my hands. And once that's done, then it's sort of frame, which is often metal, will then be formed in relation to it. Uh. Although I might have drawn the shape, I would never cut the metal till I finish making the lucite because I want that relationship Mm. to be right, if you know what I mean. Uh, I think Balance is quite important. So the scale of everything um, and how they sit together. Uh, and then, as I said earlier, yes, that thing about the rivets and the brooch pin and things, that sort of placement of the specifics kind of comes out in the making process. And again, it's a sort of judgment call about balance. So, yes, there's a sort mm. of a gentle flow through it all. But, yeah, I really enjoy the fact that decisions do get made in the making process as well as in my head and on paper it does Mm. mean I don't tend to document it very carefully so yes coming back and doing it again (laughs) so they're quite exclusive pieces in that case (laughs) I would say even if I make the same piece three times it will always be unique because it's always formed in the hand slightly differently that relationship 
you know, yeah, the energy will be almost the same, but not quite, you know, they'll each have their own little quirks. Mm. And so you've, um, would you say you've really niched down? That's um, on, are you sticking with brooches? No, I think it's been quite interesting actually this year to almost, I have almost exclusively made brooches for the last 12 months, uh, which has been a huge pleasure. Um, and actually I think has pushed my work on quite a lot and given me a bit more freedom but no I'm ready now I'm about to start a new collection and I want to come back especially to earrings which I also love um and can be so fun uh Mm. I also would like to challenge myself to make a neck piece or two this year something so we'll see what's coming up for you this year have you you've got so I'll be doing Goldsmiths again yeah which I'm really really excited about and I really enjoyed my first one even though it was online but I'm really hoping there might be some chance to meet people in person this year even if it's Mm. you know by appointment or whatever and then I also have uh, Collect which I've always wanted to do Um, so I'm very excited doing that with Design Nation in a couple of weeks Uh, again online but actually yeah I think these bigger events can create actually a really fantastic environment online so I don't think all events work and I think that we're all a bit tired but I think if they put enough energy into kind of creating the stories and creating fantastic content that draws people into I guess those narratives that you would get in person and I think you know the Crafts Council seem to be doing an amazing job of doing that so there's been lots of stories published in the run-up to collect uh, and then I'm also doing Munich Jewelry Week for the first time. Um, and that's going to be published. So that would be quite interesting. They're almost coming at it sideways and saying, no, let's not do yet another sort of web-based event, but let's actually make this a tangible thing. So, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to see how that comes out. So each exhibition will be given a sort of space in the publication. If you're thinking about yourself before you took this kind of leap back in or if you think of someone uh, who might be on the cusp of not necessarily permission not necessarily about career change (laughs) I don't think but just sort of giving yourself permission to be creative again what what would you say how would you do you have any advice or any thoughts on how to I guess how to take that leap I don't know there's so many things I want to say um I guess commit to it until it feels comfortable again, if that makes sense. I think the the transition period back in is quite hard and it is quite uncomfortable. And actually, if you don't force yourself to do it every day or do it every week or go every week or whatever it is that you are doing, then you don't refine that language. So, yeah, I guess, you know, make a decision, but then stick to it until it becomes more natural and at that point you'll want to stick with it anyways oh I love that yeah like you say commit give it so a I go think that would be yeah that'd be my thing yeah. oh well it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you it's been a pleasure chatting to you too Sam. thank you is there anything you want to add anything that sort of strikes you that we haven't talked about I think I just did I was so grateful for having that teacher that pushed me actually so Anastasia you know I did find it so uncomfortable that re-entry because I had almost sort of cut off my drawing hand at 18 if you like so it was 
yeah so I think really recognizing that it it sounds nice but it may not be nice to begin with which <laughs> mm. <laughs> is an awful thing to say um I think so, you're yeah. right I think there's definitely a pain barrier and that's why people don't necessarily go through it until until it's more uncomfortable not to well thank you so much I think you've mentioned Anastasia have you got any other kind of inspirational teachers or books or oh my gosh uh well V&A jewelry department can't be beaten a quiet rainy afternoon in there with a sketchbook they don't let you take photos and actually initially I really resented that but I think in an era where we all just walk around museums clicking absentmindedly, it's kind of amazing to sit on a stool and draw something as your only way of recording it. Um, and you take in so much more about it. And actually just the whole atmosphere in there, it's lovely. It's a sort of dark cocoon of a room with beautifully lit jewels from all eras and all parts of the world. Um, so, yeah, it's totally kind of draws you in and you never want to leave again. Uh I'll say there. Uh, I think the Goldsmith Centre hold amazing online events and in non-COVID times, in-person events. So I've got lots of inspiration from their talks. They have a wonderful programme of things going on there. It's very kind of inspiring. And um, I also, you know, I can't big up Morley College enough where I studied. They have an amazing array of courses for jewellers. Um at all different levels and different materials and short courses and term on courses and courses that take you on a career so yeah probably my top three brilliant thank you thank you so much ella Bye. thank you for listening to creative twist i hope you've enjoyed it show notes and resources can be found on my website sallyvandpump.com slash creative twist podcast i'd love to connect on social media at sally vandpump and hear what inspires you to get or stay creative. Thanks to Rosie Kernahan for the podcast photo, to Vicky Arledge for composing the music, to Jen at Studio 2711 for the artwork, and to Tina Cooney for her branding.